I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey guys, you ever wonder what Phil and I wear while we podcast? You can find out if you join our Patreon. We'll also be talking about the films of 1989, but that's definitely less important than seeing our Zoom backgrounds, our headphone choices, and our sweatshirts. It's true. It's true. You'll get to see all the various pieces of artwork that I have framed on my office wall, and you can see Kenny's garden, sort of. So that's something. That's exciting. It's a hanging garden. It's a hanging garden. Uh, But perhaps more important than anything, uh, we are doing this Patreon to cover the best films of 1989. Uh, Batman, When Harry Met Sally, Indiana Jones, The Last Crusade, Ghostbusters 2, with amazing guests like Tom Meissen, Liz Hanna, Joanna Robinson, Brian Cogman, Chuck Hayward. You can sign up at patreon.com backslash podcast like it's 1989. And for $5, you'll get access to all the audio of these fantastic episodes. For a few bucks more, you'll get video as well of our 99 and 89 episodes. And perhaps, most importantly, you'll be supporting us uh, so we can just keep making podcast content for you guys. Hello and welcome to Podcast Like It's 1999, the podcast where we talk about the films of 1999, hanging from the gallows here in 2021. I'm one of your hosts, Kenny Nybar. And I'm Phyllis Cove. And with us today is Simon Ennis. Nice to see you, Simon. Hi, boys. How you doing? Well, you know, we're very calm. It seems that the <laughs> Zoom or the internet has an issue with the timbre of my voice. And every time Here's what's I great. speak... For our, for our listeners, there were there were two previous takes, and we got a different form of execution for each of the takes, which I which I appreciated, and I think Simon did as well. Yeah, I'm really yeah. glad that one worked because spoiler alert, the next one would have been from like 
Auschwitz. No, wasn't going to do. Wasn't going to do that one. That was it. (laughs) If that one didn't work, we were going back to the top. Um, But yeah, so for some reason, uh, the internet has cut me off. So if that happens during the course of this podcast, we're just going to fuck it. We'll do it live. Fuck it. We'll do it live. Simon, great to see you. Got to talk about Mister Death, the rise and fall of Fred Leichter, Leichter, Luchter, like Lucher, Lucher. I think Lucher is how he seems to say it in the film. But then when Nazis are saying his name, they say Leuchter, Leuchter, which is is more German. But I I, I think I think Lucher is the sort of general Americanized pronunciation. That feels right. But my sense is he probably would have gone on to adopt the Nazi pronunciation of his own uh, American name. Feels, feels so, right. That feels right. He, uh, <laughs> this is a documentary. It's Errol Morris, the great documentarian, uh, has mm-hmm. an incredibly interesting career. Um, for instance, I didn't know he was just a Long Island boy. Did you guys know that? No. Hmm. That's he's interesting. Just, yeah, he's he's just kind. He, he's just kind of your average everyday Long Island boy who's made like seven or eight world changing documentaries. Yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, this is, uh, this is certainly one of them. Um, Simon, thank you for, for coming back to this pod, uh, to talk about this one. Oh, my pleasure. I, I always get my favorite directors, David Lynch, the first time, Errol Morris this time. So, yeah. Do you, Simon, think that, I mean, Errol Morris feels he's in, he's in the pantheon of what, like top five, top three documentarians ever, right? In terms of how he sort of revolutionized the format. Would you agree with that? Oh yeah, easily. Uh, yeah, easily, easily top. Five. I mean, I don't know how you'd rank them, but but definitely one of the absolute giants of it. And I mean, in a way, he he probably has done the most to you know um, to just create the feel of what documentary looks like now. Um, like every Netflix documentary, every HBO documentary just has his fingerprints all over it, and. That sort of started with his movie, uh, The Thin Blue Line, which was kind of the first documentary to actually have like stylish uh, reenactments in it, which is now everywhere and kind of grew. But like, you know, Mr. Death, I watched it again yesterday, as I know it did you on Holocaust Remembrance Day, which was very apt. Um, But like at the time, most movies, most documentaries didn't look anything like that. And now basically all of them do. So here's another sort of, because like I, I, we've done a couple documentaries on this podcast. Uh, all of them I've enjoyed, and all of them I found really interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, but I feel like one of the sort of hallmarks of Errol Morris's stuff isn't just that he picks subjects that are—I don't want to say strange is the wrong word—but off the beaten path, people that you wouldn't expect necessarily to have a documentary made about them. Um, and he doesn't pass judgment on his characters or on his subjects, which I feel like a lot of documentarians tend to have, I mean, for, not to put too fine a point on it, but a little bit of an ax to grind. They have a thing that they want to say and they have a thesis statement and they're going to get that across to you. I left this film and I would say the majority of his films always sort of unsure as to how I'm supposed to feel about the subjects. Would you agree? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that he definitely does have things he wants to say about his subjects. Uh, and in yeah. this case, uh, Lucha, absolutely. Um, but he doesn't so much as hit you over the head with what he wants to say. He directs you in ways that gets you asking questions. And I think that that's a wonderful thing. And that is, that is a huge part of his MO. So I think what he wants to do is, you know, present this guy 
um, and not say, oh, he's bad, he's bad, he's bad, but allow him to say all this crazy shit and tell you his insane story and how he went from designing various uh, execution machines to becoming a neo-Nazi darling and gives and, you know, lets us make our own, make up our own yeah. mind. I think it's very clear that Errol Morris, who is like a liberal yeah, uh, no, sure. Jew who is, you know, a, a philosopher and, and a very thoughtful academic guy, you know, what he thinks of it, um, of the subject, but, you know, he's, he's a more intelligent filmmaker. He wants us to, to, you know, make our own judgments, ask our own questions, sure. you know, think for ourselves. Uh, all right. Well, you know, I'm going to disagree. Yeah. <laughs> not, not unilaterally. I think, uh, the Robert McNamara movie, for instance, Sure. Fog of Fog, War. Fog of War, yeah, yeah. Very much follows what you're talking about, Phil, and what you talk about, Simon, where he kind of lets this guy come to his own conclusions over the course of the documentary about what he was involved in. Yeah. Um, and I do think that is probably Earl Morris's goal with a lot of these movies, that you see the full, you know, the, the full breadth of these people, um, but there is some sort of revelation within the context of the movie. There certainly is within the Thin Blue Line, which is, you know, kind of, it's not only revolutionary for the way it was shot in the reenactments. Like they actually changed the case. They they actually like like found a different outcome of this of this case and to overturn the case. Um, you know, which again, I don't I, I don't think that's what Errol Morris set out to do. I feel that he probably felt he had a journalistic responsibility to present what he found. Uh, kind of like you know we we saw with the jigs on uh, on HBO. Um, he doesn't have a journalistic imperative in this movie to include the other historian rebutting Fred right. Leitcher at every step. Mm-hmm. That is, that is editorializing, which by sure, the way, sure, sure. totally fine, but that's editorializing. And if it weren't for that guy, I think this movie would be um, dangerous actually. So I, I think it's the right move in this particular case but I was worried for a while before they introduced the other guy that we wouldn't have somebody presenting the alternate viewpoint because it's very scary to have anybody presenting a, a unfettered view of how, something like Holocaust and nihilism. Um, no matter what the person making behind the, the camera's point of view is. So I, that, that, that puts, to me, that puts way too much trust in a audience that we know is very suggestible. Well, the, the really yeah. interesting thing about that, I mean, you're totally right. And, and I was, I was actually sort of going to say that with Phil's point, I actually think that this one does have the most judgment for exactly yes. those yes. reasons that you just said, Kenny, very interesting thing about this. Um, and I think I knew it way back when, but I, I read a little bit about it in the last day or two. Originally, um, Lucher's voice was going to be the only voice in an really cut of the film his voice was going to be the only voice there. There were none of these. There was the, there was no, the, the historian Holocaust expert. There wasn't the guy in the lab. There wasn't Ernst Sundel. Really? There wasn't any of those things. It was only going to be Fred. And that sort of goes to show the tight rope that, that Errol Morris uh, walks because the reason he was going to do that is because he actually was giving the audience too much of the benefit of the doubt. Right. He yeah. thought that it would be clear to anybody that, well, of course, the Holocaust happened in, in, the, in one interview I read with him talking about it. He said, it's like, well, I mean, I don't have to prove that the sky is blue. So I didn't think I had to prove this, 
But when he started showing that early cut to people, they were like, exactly what you said, like this could go very wrong. Not everybody will get this immediately. And so that, so the first person he brought in was this historian to, you know, just very clearly refute absolutely all of the complete foolish bullshit that, that, that Lucher I mean, you know, it's, it's, takes as evidence. It's amazing to, you know, I was texting with, with both of you individually, obviously, about this a little bit. And Simon and I texted a little last night about sort of the, the parallels to sort of the QAnon world that we live in right now and, and disinformation and, and the various things that are out in the world. And it, it, it is, um, it's terrifying, obviously, but this is a perfect example of that, the sense that he was like, well, of course I can put this out because it's, abs- it's, it's absurd that anyone would believe that this didn't happen. Um, and yet there are people that's like, if they see it on a TV screen or they see it on a movie screen, they immediately take it as, as fact. Um, without doing any sort of, you know, thought on their own. Um, it's, it's, which, which kind of leads me back to, uh, to Fred and, and the lack of, of thought that he put into his journey. Do you know what I mean? Like the, 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 the willingness uh, to, 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 to just, I, it's, it's the, the sort of deluding himself, the manipulation of science in his own head to buy into this thing is just, Fascinating. Hey, table Fred for one yeah, second. Yeah, sure, sure. I yeah. just want to get back to this idea of the willingness to buy in because I think yeah. it's something a little even more insidious than you see it on the screen and therefore people are willing to believe it. There's there's this strain through America and this movie to me proves, even though there's so many examples from history, but this movie to me proves as a primary document this well precedes QAnon, um, or even things like uh, like Loose Chains, a 9-11 documentary that, quote-unquote, documentary that claims, you know, was inside job, um, where people, a massive swath of this country doesn't want to believe what they're taught by authoritative experts. Um, there is this belief that is inside of something that they are not. And documents like Loose Change or document QAnon stuff or stuff like Alex Jones' show are the the actual truth that's being held from them by some kind of insider. And that is a psychology that I truly can't understand. Mm-hmm. Um, I understand it exists. And assuming that there's a conspiracy lies you at every level from the top level of your government to the teacher aid in your classroom. That that's very strange to me. Yeah. It's, it's, I, it, I keep coming back to sort of just distrust. I, I don't, it feels really just, it really, I mean, we were talking about this before about, you know, the, the, the current stock GameStop stuff that's going on and just this, uh, and, and I was talking about how, you know, I don't necessarily trust Reddit. I don't necessarily trust online communities because I just don't know how fact-based it is a lot of the time. Um, it's not to say that they aren't good or bad or what have you. It's just, I just don't know what to make of it. So if I don't know what to make of it, my initial response is either to A, ignore it, or B, do more research so I feel like I at least have some sense of, of an understanding of whatever the, the subject is. I think, unfortunately, a lot of people go the opposite way, which is... Um, 
They don't trust it. They don't understand it. And they fully believe what is put in front of them. Well, a healthy skepticism sure. is good when you're approaching yeah. anything, right? And that, that's, uh, that, that's you're, I think you're taking the right approach. What, what's happened in this country that legitimately you know, scares the shit out of me is, and I think this movie does a really good job of kind of showing the, the two levels of this. There are people who are profiting off of this. There are people who are profiting off of the misinformation who probably know better. Um, I don't. I, I would put a guy like Lee Atwater in that group, or I would put a guy like Carl Rove in that group. Um, people who know that they're playing upon, you know, this this percentage of the population who are willing to believe these alternate facts. Uh, and I don't think we ever had a president who truly believed it until we until Trump. And what scared me about Trump was he was a true believer. Um, scared me about Sarah Palin was that she was a true believer, right? Where she was actually regurgitating the lies with the full force of someone who believes them as truth. And what's scary about the QAnon movement is it seems to be run by true believers. What's scary potentially is to be run by true believers. Um, and that because I don't know if this Holocaust denier was a the, the main guy who was in jail and on trial in Canada uh, was a true believer. But Fred Leitcher wound up becoming that. He wound up truly believing that the Holocaust didn't happen or at least didn't happen as they said it happened. Um, and those people are the, those people are the dangerous people. For sure, for sure. Those people who can take a polygraph, who could stand in front of a group yeah. of people who could tell you this is how it really is. And you can tell, you know, their sincerity. Yeah. That's when it gets very scary. Well, you know, the, and I'm, I'm very curious as to your thoughts, both of your thoughts on this. Because I, I, as I was watching it yesterday, first and foremost, when I saw it in 99, for whatever reason, I believed that the Holocaust denying was kind of like a third act twist. I didn't realize it came in so early in the film. Like it's most about a half movie. hour into the, yeah, it's most of the movies, like a half hour into the movie. So that, that also kind of blew my mind a little bit, but watching it yesterday, I just wish that I could understand why he went into his, um, uh, I don't know what the best, uh, sort of him when he goes to the concentration camps to look at them, to figure out whether or not they existed or whatever the case might be. I just don't really understand the mindset. He, it's almost like he went in with a preconceived notion, like that he needed to prove what this guy wanted him to prove. Rather than going there with a scientific mind, he seemed to go there with, with the approach of how do I defend this man's notions of the Holocaust? Am I crazy in that? Well, he was definitely leaning that way. Okay. Okay. I think it's, I think it's two things. Number one, um, you know, he, he says that he, and and this is this is totally echoed these days uh, on the on yeah. the right when it used to be a a, a left wing issue, but has now basically been usurped as a right wing issue. He was trying to be a free speech warrior. He was saying like, you know, I'm right. I'm American, and you know, this guy has the right to you know sit, has the right to free speech. He should be able to say and publish whatever he wants. Um, so so he was definitely tipped towards Ernst Zundel at the time. What I think is so fascinating about this is that this is a guy, I mean, it's sort of a reverse American dream story. This is a guy who is an, he teaches himself how to be an engineer. He's not credited, as we find out later on. Uh, he doesn't, he's not actually licensed to be an engineer. 
he somehow sort of through his own, you know, his own hard work really and, and, and ambition gets to redesign this electric chair. And then as he moves from working from one state to another state to another state in their various, uh, uh, you know, various ways of executing people, he's bestowed, he's bestowed this creditation of being an expert. He, he was not an expert in lethal injection machines. He made a electric chair. And just because of that, another state said, well, you can make this lethal injection machine. And then because he just of that, made like okay, a headpiece, it was like yeah. the headpiece. And the governor was like, well, this guy knows what he's doing. Well, yeah. It's, 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 it's crazy. So, so he, so he basically builds himself up from nothing is bestowed this expertise that's increasing and increasing and increasing. And then when this other group comes in that happen to be neo-Nazis in Canada that are willing to bestow yet another expertise feather in his cap, he will take the attention. It seems like he's just on the rise and he can also become a hero in the good old USA value of, of free speech. It's, it's a totally wild nightmare American dream story that's completely fucked up and weird. And, and I think, I think to your, your point as well, so this, there's the acceptance part of it, but also I think that the, uh, there was, there's a line later on that the historian says that Holocaust denialism is a lot about vanity. Once you kind of get into this group, then everybody's kind of giving you the thumbs up. Everybody's yeah. agreeing with you. Everybody is help. Like everybody's kind of helping big each other up and yeah. it becomes addictive. And you can completely see that in like any in other call. Yeah, exactly. And in all the QAnon stuff that's happening now. Yeah. Like, uh, yeah. I mean, like the KKK, like your grand wizard of racism, it's, yeah. Uh, yeah, that it, I, I would imagine that for a lifelong weirdo like like, like Leitcher, uh, that was probably pretty intoxicating. Um, I think I want to run you through my journey with this movie real fast. I never saw it, and I didn't know what it was about. So um, I only I, I, the the closest like. Um, Contact I think I had with it was probably when Ebert and Siskel and Ebert reviewed it on the show, but I didn't remember the Holocaust denialism stuff. I thought it was about a guy who, who was, yeah. you know, the guy who created execution methods. So imagine what that's like for me going into this movie <laughs> and seeing this oddly charming, strange Woody Allen, Rick Moranis character. <laughs> Who drinks forty cups of coffee a day and smokes six cigarettes and is six able packs to six packs. six packs of cigarettes and is able to in English without um, without emotion the apparatus apparatus for, for with which he uses to humanely carry out executions. I was taken by the guy, okay, and you could see it by my log. Like the, how I was thinking, okay, this movie would be really tough to watch if this guy wasn't so endlessly compelling, but fortunately he is. So take, I think that that's probably how do people look at the guy. And a lot of people found him kind of charming in his own little weird, wormy way. And the, uh, and the most charming thing about him and it's a weird 
it's a weird adjective to use, but I think it totally applies, is the reason he was so successful in his field was because his field was probably populated by total fucking monsters who didn't actually care. Sure. And the people who actually have to carry out these executions, wardens and prison guards, like he said in the movie, saw people that they know having their heads burned off. And that was probably hard to watch. His basic humanity, when he went towards this and said it's like, you know, essentially it's revolting and inhumane to execute people in painful ways. And my job is to make it as humane as possible. I think is a save the cat moment. Um, And that made me feel like, okay, this is a guy who might be working for the bad guys, but as long as he's, it's a bit Romney thing. This is the kind of guy I want working for the bad guys. You know, at least this is the kind of guy who I can who, who who I can trust to be right about some of the bigger things, like we don't kill people by like setting their hair on fire. So that I, I think that to some extent we didn't give him we don't give him enough credit for his in my opinion, his fundamental decency. And what that's what gets kind of perverted and gets abused as, as the movie goes on, you know, um, well, to you the can point even, where he kind of got lost. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, it does, it's, I agree with everything you're saying. I remember that moment in the documentary and thinking, because he talks about, you know, humanity and that people are still deserving of a, you know, of, of a, a death that doesn't, that doesn't torture them. You know what I mean? Like this idea of that he's looking for the most quote-unquote humane way to, to kill people. Ta- you know, the way he talks about it, um, I mean, it's terrifying to think about how many poorly uh, executed people there are and have been in this country, ways that I can't even imagine. So I, I, on some level, on a human level, appreciated that, Kenny, to your point, that like that there's a human being under this and that he's looking to try to do the quote-unquote humane thing. Um, and that kind of comes full circle a little bit at the end when he's gone through this journey, he's been vilified, he's basically been shunned from <laughs> an industry you, you would think no one could be shunned from, which is the execution industry. Um, he's found, he, he's found the, the one third rail, it seems, um, which is Holocaust denying, to make sure that he's no longer a part of this industry. And on some weird fucking part of me, I feel sorry for him. And it, it, it shouldn't be that way. I shouldn't feel that way. And yet I do. And that's sort of the weird uh, fucking maelstrom that is this movie, which I think is tremendous. Well, the, well, the movie, I mean, the movie is a tragedy for those exact reasons. Yeah. Um, and it's like the tragedy of, of a fool, basically. I mean, they, you know, pe- people say it in there that like somewhere along the lines, he sold his soul to the devil, you know, for attention or whatever. I mean, he certainly willingly did. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, uh, it's fun, like, like, Kenny, how you how you watched the movie? That's definitely how I watched it back then. That's how my wife, who watched it for the first time yesterday with me, saw it. She had no idea. And when when Ernst Zundel and the Holocaust denialism stuff came in, she was just completely floored. Yeah. Um, and a, a working title for the film was actually called "Accidental Nazi," which would have really kind of <laughs> ruined. <laughs> ruined That's a surprise. Um, and then and then Phil, with what you said earlier, um, I felt the exact same way. I didn't, I didn't remember that this movie was two thirds about him getting involved in neo-Nazis 
what you remember is you remember the electric chair, you remember the 40 cups of coffee, you remember all that stuff in the first third. And I was thinking about why that is, because I mean, I saw it in 99, probably a couple of times, I probably saw it again in the early 2000s, haven't seen it in 15 plus years. But I think that part of the reason that we remember it that way is because back in 1999, you know, salad days, or idyllic times, neo-Nazis were not a going concern. It was, it was one sad little tiny meeting room in a convention center out by the airport, which is where he's giving his talks. It wasn't, you know, in the white house. It wasn't, you know, on, on Reddit. It wasn't everywhere. It, it was kind of a thing that didn't like, didn't really, you know, rear its ugly yeah. head all that much very yeah. publicly as much as it does now. So now I think it actually delivers a much bigger punch. It's a lot more harrowing, a lot more disturbing now than it even was 22 years ago. That's an interesting point and an interesting lesson. Um, the bad elements never go away. They only, yeah. under, they, they, they only hibernate. You know, I, I, it's a very different kind of point, but I remember when the Sopranos came out thinking, well, this is fun, but the mafia is not a thing anymore, so we can kind of enjoy it. And lo and behold, the mafia is very much a thing, you know, like... <laughs> <laughs> but the yeah. mafia is a very big deal these days and, and, and never kind of ceased to be a big deal. They just kind of got smarter with their PR. Um, so, yeah, I think that, uh, like, I think we can, we can never stop being vigilant against things like Nazism or racism or any of these, you know, kind of oppressive, um, oppressive isms that uh, plague us. Yeah, it's, it's, I, I texted this to to you, Simon, yesterday, but um, this film was was upsetting in '99 for sure. Um, uh, but it was also uh, oddly exciting in an Errol Morris sort of way. I thought it was a really, I thought it was a, a, a cool movie as much as it could be under those circumstances. Uh, watching it yesterday, it was ha- straight up harrowing. <laughs> like it was just, it was a. Um, and maybe more so than any film we've watched so far, Kenny, in terms of, I know you didn't watch it in 99, but just that, the, the difference of how I viewed it. I mean, I'd say American Beauty is probably the only other one that, that genuinely has drastically changed in the way that I viewed it. Or, or that I'm a different person now, the world's a different place, and seeing this film through that lens was a really powerful thing. Well, I didn't know you had watched it in 99. I texted you right after, because I was... I knew this would affect you. I I, I know you well. And I, I know you well enough to know that this is the kind of movie that might you know might might have some psychological. It's pretty pretty triggering. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it was a little triggering. I know. I, yeah. yeah, I know the the irony. The irony is, I find the word "trigger" to be so yeah. triggering. I try not to use it. <laughs> fair, fair point. But yeah, uh, I just, yes, yeah, I thought this might be triggering for you. Yeah. Um, I'm happy you you had seen it. You could adequately brace yourself. Yeah, it was. I mean, I I think that the the, the irony, of course, is uh, I thought I had braced myself. Is kind of the point. Like I thought I saw it, and I was like, yeah, I remember this movie. Like yeah. it's a guy who makes electric chairs, and then in the, at the end, we find out he's a he's a you know in Holocaust denier. Like what? And then it's over, and I was like, oh no, it's an hour of Holocaust denying. Um, and and it was um. It was it was a much harder watch, uh, but at the same time, you know, it's a testament to Errol Morris who makes these people palatable. He makes them watchable. He makes them um, human. And and I mean, I think that that's ultimately 
always kind of his goal, which is humanizing people that you think are essentially unable to be humanized. I mean, that seems to be kind of the thing that he, or at least one of the things that he, that he strives for. Um, you know, I, I think, you know, uh, Fast, Cheap and Out of Control, which, which might be my favorite of his movies, which is also just about a, a bunch of <laughs> weirdos that he decides to kind of make a movie about. Um, I, I, I don't know. I, this, this, this viewing made me a want to watch more of his films. I've seen a lot of his films, but there's some that I haven't seen that I did. And he has a new one on Showtime right now about uh, Timothy Leary, which I'm very interested to watch. Yeah. Psychedelic Love Story, I believe is what it's called. Um, so he's just, he's, he's a fascinating filmmaker. I want to just give a very quick synopsis for the people that haven't seen it because I don't think a lot of people have. Um, documentary filmmaker Errol Morris investigates the case of a man who became an authority on capital punishment but was discredited when he got involved on the wrong side of a court case. Lucher, a meek man whose appearance belies his grim expertise, develops what he says is a more effective electric chair. Before long, he's in demand from officials who want his opinions on other types of execution. But when called to aid the case of an accused Holocaust scenario, Lutcher's problems begin. Directed by Errol Morris, who did uh, Gates of Heaven, Thin Blue Line, Brief History of Time, Fast, Cheap and Out of Control, The Fog of War. Uh, Mr. Death opened on December 29th, 1999 against Stuart Little, Toy Story 2, The Talented Mr. Ripley, Any Given Sunday and The Green Mile. It would go on to make around $500,000 in North America. It's got 100% on Rotten Tomatoes from critics. 87% from audiences. I'm just going to read a brief clip from Ebert's four-star review where he said, this is the seventh documentary by Errol Morris who combines dreamlike visual montages with music by Caleb Sampson to create a movie that is more revere, revere and meditation than reportage. Morris is drawn to subjects who try to control that which cannot be controlled, life and death. His heroes have included lion tamers, uh, gardeners, robot designers, turkey callers, autistics, um, Death Row inmates, Pet cemetery owners, and Stephen Hawking, whose mind leaps through space and time while his body slumps in a chair. Like all of Morris's films, Mr. Death provides us with no comfortable place to stand. We often leave his documentaries not sure if he liked his subjects or was ridiculing them. He doesn't make it easy for us with simple moral labels. Human beings, he argues, are fearsomely complex and can get and can get their minds ver- around very strange ideas indeed. Sometimes it is possible to hate the sin and love the sinner. Poor Fred, what a dope, what a dupe. What a lonely, silly man. Um, yeah, I think, I mean, uh, it's it's an apt review. I, I was not surprised, but also, I mean, 100% on Rotten Tomatoes <laughs> for a movie that, uh, for a documentary film that, that, that about a Holocaust denier and an and a, and a executioner, um, obviously not a box office uh, hit, but... Um, I don't even think this film was nominated for best documentary, if I'm not mistaken. I don't believe that it was. It was not. I, I just watched a, a, a 60 minutes from when it came out, mm-hmm. um, or, or I think maybe about a year when it came out. It was a really great profile um, of of Errol Morris. They talked to Roger Ebert, who was basically the biggest Errol Morris fanboy in the world, sure. um, for good reason. Um, and yeah, and and um, apparently after this, actually after this movie. Uh, Errol Morris was was brought into the academy, joined the academy because there were so many academy members that were disgusted that he had never yet been nominated for best documentary after making like five of the best ones that they basically 
gamed the system in a in a GameStop Redditor sort of way, <laughs> and it was like let's let's like this guy has to be a member. And it wasn't until huh. um, until Fog of War, which was sort of his straightest film at the mm-hmm. time, even though it's complex and it has all the stuff it has yeah. that that he was nominated. And, and I'm I'm pretty sure he I won. Think a, he, I think he won, won a, yeah. an Oscar for for that yeah. one as well. I'd say in that in that Ebert review, th- there's a thing that's sl- uh, even slightly more sort of right than what you said about humanizing these people in that looking for the com- the the complexity within people is what he mm-hmm. is what he's doing even even more than just humanizing you know bad people or weirdos or whatever the the fast cheap and out of control subjects are very benel- benevolent people they're they're lovable and none of them do anything evil funnily enough fred Luchter was going to be the fifth in oh, fast really cheap and out of control Huh. And uh-huh. took him out because I think that if I can, if I'm getting this quote correctly, he he was starting to cut it together, and his and Morris's wife said to him, "If you bring Hitler into the soup, <laughs> Hitler isn't just a spice. Now it yeah. becomes Hitler's soup." So, <laughs> so then yeah, he, he decided Hitler's to take out of the movies. <laughs> You know, have have a, have a sweeter movie about a robot scientist, a lion yeah, tamer, yeah, a topiary yeah. gardener, and then make his electric yeah. chair Hitler movie its own thing. Yeah, I mean, she's totally right. It would have thrown the balance of the film off completely. But yeah, he's. I mean, I I, I don't know. It's. I mean, maybe this is just my little bubble that I live in, or my cinematic, you know, tunnel vision. But like. When I think documentaries, I think Errol Morris and Michael Moore. Like, those are the two guys, and I'm, I'm not equating them because I have my issues with Michael Moore as, as a filmmaker, even if I do love, really do like some of his films. Um, it's just he, he defined the medium for me, and it seems like he defined it for a lot of people as well and, and really changed the way that it, um, that it was perceived. I, I, it's, it's amazing to me that it, that, not amazing. Of course, the fucking Academy needs to have their goddamn arm twisted before they even like let the guy in the door. But, um, yeah. (laughs) It's what, you know, it's, it's, it's exactly what Simon was saying. Um, yeah. He, he revolutionized the medium and that's very scary for people who have been for years and years and years. Um, I, and I, w- I would say Michael Moore did that too. Oh, I mean, Roger Roger and me, I, I'm sure it was nominated, but it didn't did win. win. I don't believe it won. I think, yeah. I think uh, Columbine was his first win. Yeah, yeah. there you go. Columbine was his first win, and that, yeah. that was in 2002. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, you know, I think people found him very kind of scary. Polarizing, sure, 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 yeah. Yeah, I would, yeah, well, but yeah. not polarizing him for his politics. Polarizing for for making himself the central character of his yeah. movies. Yeah. yeah, that's not something that documentarians are comfortable with necessarily. Um, and the ones you are, you have to be really kind of wary of. And I think that that's a, a, like a like a, a a scary thing for some people. Really, just let the story come to that. Yeah, and, and yeah, both both um, of those guys. You know, in the wake of them, there's been thousands of imitators. Some great some a lot of them horrible and a lot of them kind of mediocre i would definitely put both of them on the yeah. mount rushmore of documentary along with agnes varda and and fred wiseman for sure you know some other some other people yeah i well. mean the, like, the only other one that i think of are the Maisel brothers you know what i oh, mean yeah, are, are sure. yeah. you know and and as a, t- a totally different type of documentary filmmaking for all intents and purposes but yeah it's it's i i don't know i i i <laughs> 
as I get older, I'm sure you guys have this as well, where there are things that you're just like, I wasn't particularly interested in documentaries or, or docu-series or, or that sort of things when I was younger. I, I know that I, Simon, you were, and, and that's awesome, but for a little, a little not, more than not, me anyway. Not, not so much. Yeah, m- But m- as m- I've gotten older, and I don't know if this is just as you get older, you want more truth in your life. You want more things that feel, you know what I mean? Like more bearing walls, things to hold on to. Um, but I've just found myself watching more documentaries, reading more nonfiction as well. And just sort of, for whatever reason, uh, I've, I've sort of found that very, very calming right now for what that's worth. I don't know. But what, what is not that? This including, movie, including this movie? <laughs> not this movie. Well, I, Sorry, I, I, me, too, me too, right? I almost yeah. exclusively read nonfiction now. I'm super bored by almost any novel I start. <laughs> um, and, and I mean, last night I went to sleep listening to The Power Broker. So on a book, a book on tape. So like that, that's how far I will go for yeah. nonfiction stuff. Yeah. Uh, I... I, I I don't know what it is. I don't want to say yeah, no, something as simple as like, you know, it's an anthropological thing and we're trying to find out where we come yeah. from, from who we are and how everything happened, which I guess is part of it. True. And I guess part of it's the, the, the real of it, you know, like you said, the real of it, the, you know, the undeniable facts of it, and then we could draw our own conclusions from it. But I, I don't know. I, I tend to kind of find these stories to be, I, I, I'll give you my best guess. When I watch a scripted show movie, as someone who does that, I am most excited by things that cut against my expectations, which I think all audiences are, but I think me in particular, I'd rather I'd rather have a rattlesnake thrown into the middle of the room than have things go where they um however, when a rattlesnake's thrown into the middle of a room I yelled, Davis is Mackinac, Davis is Mackinac. Because like, I'm so in it. Like, I, I, I feel like I know the structures, but I also know the tricks and it's very hard to, to fool me. And I know in, in general, you're going to end it in one of two ways. And uh, I'm going to feel, you know, I'm going to feel for the most part the way I feel at the end of most movies. You don't know what the fuck is going to happen in a documentary or in a nonfiction book or in an un- unscripted series. You, you, in, are the ones that are the most ridiculous, right? Like the end jinx, if it were scripted, would be fucking ridiculous, you know? So you can things like that and like certain things like I love Survivor. Um, some things that happen on Survivor, if scripted, would be absurd. Yeah. But the fact that they happen in real life like that, the, the way they happen is, is thrilling. So I do think it, it does go a little more, it goes beyond kind of a um kind of a how did this all happen and for me it's always like a can you believe how it all happened yeah you know yeah i mean it's it's not it's not to use a trite saying but you know truth is stranger than fiction as well and i do find that you know when you're when you're reading nonfiction, at least for me, I find it either a inspiring or b just mind-blowing that it happened like that's just that that's just fascinating to me. And, and and to your point, Kenny, when you're seeing these documentaries and you're seeing the way that these things play out, um, and, and by the way, like, you know, I'm watching the pretend it's a city right now, the 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 Fran Lebowitz thing, which is, I mean, it's, it's unbelievable. It's the best. I mean, that's, that's a documentary, but like, 
I'm just, I'm just enjoying being in a world with a person who sees the world the way she does. And that in and of itself is part of why I think Errol Morris's stuff is so fascinating to me. Like, I don't like Fred. I don't want to spend any fucking time with this guy, you know, in person, but the way he sees the world is fascinating. And the, the way he's lived his life is fascinating. Um, so I don't know. I mean, I, I guess my question to you, Simon, would be, you know, you've, as, as we mentioned, you've done a, a handful of documentaries yourself. Um, you know, when you approach them, I guess my question is, are you learning as you go along? Or do you know everything about your subject before you sit down to actually do a documentary? Oh, my God. Uh, the first one. A hundred percent. There's, I mean, there's no possible, there's no possible way to know everything about it. I mean, I guess I've never made a historical documentary that was like, you know, that was all just like archival footage and just telling the story of a person who lived a hundred years ago or whatever, where you actually would kind of know the stuff. Even then it's a process of uncovering things, but, but yeah, no, absolutely not. I mean, I think that, what what makes documentary so exciting is that you're basically following a mystery. It may not be like a whodunit, but mm-hmm. it's just about learning a bit more and a bit more and a bit sure. more, asking questions, figuring out what the hell's going on. And what I think makes good documentaries, at least the kind of documentaries I like so much and the kind that we're talking about, and Errol Morris specifically, and he was the one that really created this you know, way of doing things is the freedom to follow a story, the freedom to follow a character um, and do that in an open-ended way that can lead you down a path that you would never have expected, as well as doing a lot of things you're not talking about right now, which is imposing a lot of filmmaking onto that. Sure. Um, Because we're, you know, we're experiencing this story as Errol Morris sees it or as Agnes Barta would or as Fred Wiseman would. And you have somebody like Frederick Wiseman, who is like the sort of godfather of like fly on the wall verite kind of stuff. Um, You know, that and he's he's totally one of my heroes, too, even though that's, you know, I'm I'm a lot more excited by the Errol Morris style, the like more arch, the more stylized the more visually stunning, the more dreamlike kind of stuff. But Wiseman, who I'm actually like loving more and more now as he's in his 90s and making three and a half hour long movies about the New York Public Library or the Boston, or Boston City Hall, that was his movie last year. Wow. Um, you know, back in the day, back when we were in university, Frederick Wiseman would have been pointed to as somebody that like, you know, the film professors would say like, that's real documentary because it's true and it's right. objective. And it's all these things that Errol Morris, you know, with all his weird stylization is not. And I would say, and I think people realize this now that you can be as verite and as flying the wall as possible as Wiseman is. And those films are still unbelievably personal and subjective in that you have this particular guy pointing the camera here, not there editing this, not that there, there is no real objective truth in documentary filmmaking. There are just sort of levels of how you present things. Obviously facts are facts. Those are real things. The Holocaust did happen, but how you show reality is very personal and is and and is and is totally wildly fluctuates from one filmmaker to another. 
And it's like a beautiful kind of alchemy that you're dealing with real people, you're following a story, you don't necessarily know what you're doing. And then even in just simple stylistic ways, you're as a filmmaker reacting to it and, and that interplay. And the way Errol Morris does it is amazing. And funnily enough, I just, I just flashed back to when we were in film school together and second year was documentary. I had no interest in making documentaries. Uh, I didn't until a few years after that. I'd loved some. And talking about, you know, the Errol Morris or Werner Herzog documentary style thing and, and the teacher like screaming at me and being like, those are all, those are all fake things. Those are like, that's not real. You know, Errol Moore should go back to, to you know, doing the thin blue lines, not just like dealing with these weirdos and whatever. And it's like, yeah. in the end, <laughs> what happened? Turn on any, yeah. any yeah. Netflix doc, Any Netflix any fucking documentary. Doc. And yeah. it's all Errol Moore's Your life. teacher's a bad teacher. It may yeah, be a I, bad person. <laughs> um, <laughs> certainly, certainly, a, certainly a bad artist. Um you know, I, I, I think you're I think you're hundred percent right. And it feels dismissive to films uh from people like Frederick Weisman or Weisman and other um more fly on the wall type documentarians to say that, that that's not art, that that's just documenting. In fact, I think I think even the term documentary do, documentary is a little misleading, right? Yeah. It really the, the, these are necessarily editorials right these would not be on the front page of newspapers these would be in the op-ed section which is where they belong you are trying to make an argument no matter what through every decision you've made for like you said simon the lighting is a decision the camera angles is a decision music you play in the background is a decision everything is a decision that will make the audience feel a certain way um and obviously these are bigger decisions but they're it's not different from writing a persuasive essay the words you use that's a decision you are you're you trying to make the audience feel a certain way um i have a question about documentaries in general i think that this Phil, we talk about 99, obviously, every week on this podcast, uh, almost always through the you know, lens of what a great year it was for, for scripted films, um, for adult films. But we have noticed, you know, there are some revolutionary kids films in this movie. I mean, in, in this year. And there have been amazing shows. There's been music, but whatever. Uh, there have been a lot of, there were a lot of documentaries made in 1999 that have stood the test of time. Um, there's this. We did Buena Vista Social Club. Um, there is Beyond the Mat, which we did. Uh, one day in September, I think, it has staying, has staying power. Um, I, think there are, I think there are other well, things. American Movie and American movie. Pimp are both. American Movie, yes. American Movie yeah. and American Pimp, yes. Yeah. Both movies that still have, you know, some some relevance and reverence in certain from certain corners so what was it about this moment in american and the and, and the other thing is most of the movies we named are not uh prestige documentaries right Correct. like i understand buena vista won the oscar and one day september is your typical kind of oscar documentary movie but a lot of these have a pop vibe that uh, you didn't see out of documenta- documentaries that, that made it into like the outskirts of the mainstream. So what was it about this moment in documentary filmmaking that broke through? 
I mean, I, I, I'm just going to hazard a guess in the sense that it felt, I mean, and this feels like a cheap answer and we say it all the time, but being, being at the end of a, of a millennium, this, this turning of the page, this sort of people feeling like it was an opportunity to be able to look backwards at, at sort of the, you know, almost 2000 years that, that we had up until this point, um, felt like, you know, obviously uh, rich terrain. Um, in terms of this specific batch of, of documentaries, which does cover the gamut, I mean, from, from Mr. Death to American Pimp to American Movie, I mean, these are all very, very different movies. Um, I, I can only speak for myself when it comes to American Movie, and I remember Simon and I were big fans of it back in 99. You know, if, you, if you're in film school and that movie lands, I mean, you, it's, I mean obviously it's going to speak to you. Um, Yesterday on Twitter, apropos of nothing, someone I follow started talking about how they just watched American movie for the first time and had like a whole thread of like 10 tweets about, you know, how amazing this film is. Um, I, I, I think that it's just a weird lightning in a bottle moment. But I, 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 I look to you, Simon, to a certain degree as to what alchemy might have been in the ether in that moment that you think might have led to this confluence of films. Well, I'm, I'm not sure exactly. I was just looking up Agnes Varda's um, uh, filmography because I thought that The Gleaner's Nine might have been 1999, but it was 2000. So it was close, um, right. which was sort of another another big movie for her. The thing that, I mean, I don't know. I'd have to look at a couple of years before and after. I don't know that 1999 was a particularly amazing year for documentaries, like more so than a 98 or 2001 sure. or something. I'd, I'd have to look. But the thing that when you started talking about that moment there, that really jumped into my mind is if it's not the last year, it's about the last year where all the movies that you just mentioned, except for beyond the mat were shot on film. Right. Right. It's right before video really took over feature documentaries might, might've been another couple of years before it was, it was fully there. And then it was another few years before you could actually even make it look good. Mm-hmm. But it's so, I mean, like it completely blows my mind that something like American movie would have been shot on film. I mean, as yeah. somebody that's made a feature film following a feature documentary film, following regular people like Mark and Mike in, uh, in American movie, having to think about how, how, how expensive film is while you're doing that is just completely yeah, mind blowing to me. I cannot yeah. imagine as a documentary filmmaker, having to yeah. actually do that. Mm-hmm. With, with this movie, with, with Mr. Death, I realized something because, and we haven't talked about the Interatron uh, yet, which is the, 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 way that, the way that Errol Morse does these interviews. So he does these interviews that are, you know, straight to camera. The subject is looking right down mm-hmm. the barrel. And the way he achieves that is he basically has a, two camera teleprompter system where where Fred is looking at what is a, a, tele, a teleprompter that is projecting an image of Errol Morris's face. And behind uh-huh. that is the camera lens. And Errol Morris is looking at a teleprompter with Fred's face from the camera oh, that was wow. behind the other one. And he, he has a camera. So it's like they're having too. a conversation. So it's- yeah, so they're looking into each other's eyes on video. They're basically on Zoom. They're basically doing this right sure. now. Only they can't sure. see themselves. So, the, so I, I knew about this technology. I never used it. I actually often use um, a cheaper version called the iDirect that's literally just done with mirrors. That's mm-hmm. the same thing. It's, it's almost like an old stage magician 
uh, mirror trick that that is super cool and really gets great effects. But I knew that he was doing this, and I realized that the interview that he was doing, if you look at it, it was actually shot on video and then transferred to film. It was interesting. Like, the TV was either filmed or whatever, but I could see the video artifacts in the close-up of Fred Lucher. And that makes a lot more sense to me because you can run however much video. He's probably shooting right. like beta SP or something like that, like some broadcast standard video at the time. He's shooting that and then editing offline and then transferring the last bit to film. But then all the stylized stuff is when he's actually shooting film. And that's the stuff that Robert Richardson shot. So I okay. can kind of understand like how he's beginning to weave this film and digital technology together that within a couple of years would be so much more easy to handle and allow you to do so, so, so much more. I mean, I, you just said Robert Richardson. I didn't know Robert Richardson shot this. Like, I didn't know that Robert Richardson shot Errol Morris's movies, which says, he, you know, a lot. He, he shot Fast Keep and Out of Control, and he shot parts of this. I'm sure he didn't shoot the... Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The uh, interview the, shit. The interviews, yeah. but, yeah. I mean, there's... Look at all oh, the stuff beautiful. with, the, with yeah. the with the crazy blown-out overhead lighting. Yeah. When I was rewatching, when I was watching it last night, the stuff uh, in the diner of him drinking the coffee... Mm-hmm. It looks like natural born killer. I was I was literally just gonna say as I was watching it last night, the hot lighting and even Lucher, who feels a little bit like Tommy Lee Jones in uh, in <laughs> Natural Born Killers, that I was just like, why does why is it? And that it totally makes sense. Like that that now it all kind of it really does look like Natural Born Killers. Yeah, <laughs> which I'm sure is intentional. Oh, got a dog. <laughs> which I'm sure is intentional. No worries. Yeah, I mean, I I think that um, that's. That would be quite the double bill, actually. Natural Born Killers in this movie. Uh, that would uh, that would actually be uh, an interesting uh, an interesting double bill of watching those two films next to each other. But I, I, it actually also kind of brings the Oliver Stone ness. Also, kind of feels it's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze. Relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Like Oliver Stone is is trading in in his version of facts, right? In his mm-hmm. version of history, um, he's not a documentary filmmaker, and yet if you took he's a, made poll, a couple of documentaries, some of, he has some made of a which, couple. He has on, yeah. our, sure, sure. But like, I, 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 I'm curious about your thoughts on this too, Kenny, because I know that like we have similar feelings about Oliver Stone. I think maybe I'm wrong, but like, I love some of his movies. And I kind of despise some of his movies. Um, you know, a movie that I think Kenny and I both agree with, and I don't know what your thoughts are on it, but Nixon, for instance, um, is, I think, a great 
film that attempts to sort of get inside the head of a very complicated and broken soul. I think there are people that watch biopics, if we're going to consider it a biopic, and think that this is like a documentary. And that's where we come back almost full circle to where we were talking about earlier, which is like the perception of truth, the perception of what's being put out in the world, watching something on a movie screen and thinking that it's real. Um, You know, that's why, like, there are people that think the crown should have a disclaimer in front of it saying that it isn't, you know, that it isn't a document, which is insane to me. But like, we've got to that place. What do you think that says about where we are, Kenny? Uh, I think it says that people are really stupid. <laughs> okay. um, that's what I, I thought, think. But, you, know. you know, but you know, you know that's what I, I you know, that's yeah. what I think. Um, and I think that's, I think that's <laughs> obvious to some extent. Um, sure. I think people are assholes. I think people uh, love to cry foul whenever they op- have the opportunity to cry foul. The there, you said a lot there. So yeah. the um, the the sorry my. We're going to have to cut this. My daughter just FaceTimed me. Uh, And I just declined that shit for this podcast. Um, Hold on. Let me just respond to her. Okay. 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 So I think it says that people are really stupid is is the original thought. And I think we've gotten to the place where people just love to cry foul over anything um, if they can cry foul. And it's very... Laborious. Um, the Oliver Stone thing is interesting to me. Going back 20, 25 years, um, I've always been a kind of staunch defender of him, mm-hmm. particularly films like Nixon, JFK, and Born on the Fourth of July, Platoon. Um, the idea being it is not his responsibility to teach you about history. It is not even his responsibility to present the truth. It's yeah. just his responsibility to make a piece of art he's happy with. That's really the end of it, or not happy with. Yeah. He, so, so I think that's a lot easier of a case to make with something that is scripted. Um, and people just have to start to understand that that's, you know, obviously the case with something like, Something that is kind of clearly taking liberties, like a Nixon or a JFK. Something yeah. that's trying to be closer to um, you know, the, the true story, but it's impossible to do that. Uh, or something that, you know, something like The Crown, which is kind of evolving as the series goes along. You know, having written on something, uh, Sun Records, that was taken from history. You know, it's about Elvis, Johnny Cash, and Jerry Lee Lewis. There and we tried to be true to life. There's only so much you can do. Yeah. There's only so much that you know, um, and and you just have to accept that as a viewer. Now, I would extend this to documentaries. It's not the documentary documentarian's job to tell you the truth. It's not the documentarian's job to give you the facts. It's not the documentarian's job to do anything other than make something that they find compelling. And it's your job to be skeptical and to interrogate that and to find what you think is truthful or you think is, is worthwhile out of that as well. So anything that presupposes that you're supposed to learn from this piece of art, that's not explicitly educational. And I would put those on a, you know, kind of another plane where they're, 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 they're honest to goodness attempt is to teach. 
um, has to be taken in that same way. It's a piece of art. Well, you know, it's funny you say that because I, I, as you were talking there, I was thinking about how much audiences hate to be challenged, right? Like most audiences, if it's sitting in sitting on your couch in your in your TV room or sitting in a movie theater, want either an escape or something that isn't going to make them think too much, right? I mean, I think that, and I, I would even extend that to people that do, to some degree or another, go see documentaries, right? I mean, I, I don't know that a lot of people go to see a documentary and then go home and do research to fill in the blanks or to fill out the picture or to, to educate them so they are that their, their knowledge of this person is more sort of, you know, rounded. I think that, unfortunately, it feels like most people want art to be pleasurable, um, and that, that doesn't necessarily need to be a, a bad thing, but I do think that it sort of comes back to sort of this initial thing you were talking about, about not just people being stupid, but people being lazy, people just not applying themselves um, to art. They only it's want okay to, to be, it's okay to be lazy. It's not okay. It's not okay <laughs> to then act as if you know everything. Right. Well, sure, sure. Yeah, you know? yes, exactly. Yes. Own it. Yeah. Yeah. Go home and be, hey, if you don't want to read more about Fred Leitcher, Great, but don't start coming on a podcast and telling me, you know, we had some good ideas. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, I, Kenny, I totally, totally, totally agree with you. Uh, I couldn't have put it better myself. Um, the only, the only line, it's so funny that I'm gonna, gonna actually kind of say something against it a little bit because I basically am a 150% with you. And uh, our old documentary teacher uh, would hate you just as much as she would. <laughs> Good. Um, Scatter. But, uh, but I think that the only time that there is a line, you said educational stuff, sure. If there is a, if there is a presumption of, and this is a slippery term anyway, but a presumption of like journalistic integrity, that can be a, a line too. But for the most part, a movie is just a movie, whether or not it's a documentary or if it's a narrative film or whatever. And yeah, you're just, you know, your responsibility is to yourself as an artist and to whatever I, you know, to the audience, however you define that and however much you want to play to whatever yeah. audience it is. And I think that's a good point, Simon. And it, it the, the, the slipperiness of that term shouldn't preclude people from trying to understand what is and what is not an attempt at straight journalism um, and what is an attempt at editorializing. Um, and I think, you know, I, I, I don't, I can't think of too many films, feature films uh, meant for theatrical release that play in that journalistic, that, that, the journalistic sandbox. Yeah. Um, and in fact, I'm all, I'm tempted to say, None of them do because uh, I don't want to get, I don't want to box any film in like that. Um, you know, I'm thinking of a film, for instance, uh, a really, really good movie called, I think it was called Bully, mm-hmm. about uh, the kids who were getting bullied at school, which does kind of present itself in a journalistic way. In an, you know, kind of an on the ground reporting, this is what happens in our schools. But even that, I would say that's just a piece of the puzzle. You know, that's just a piece of the puzzle. And who knows exactly what biases are or what was left out or what was put in. Do a little more research and, you know, take this argument as, as it comes to you. 
or, or just wait for the next cue drop and, and you know, that'll tell you what, what you need to know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what, what do you think? Actually, this, this, this just had me thinking of, I mean, the, the biggest documentary as of late that um, completely played fast and loose with the truth, the Scorsese Dylan doc from two years ago. Have you guys seen that? Which is I literally, I seen that. it's on Netflix, Rolling Thunder Review. It's one of my favorite documentaries of the last few years. And it is at least 30% complete lies, <laughs> completely made up. Like Sharon Stone is interviewed saying that she was a groupie on this Dylan tour in 1972. <laughs> she was never there. Um, there's, there was a filmmaker, there's a filmmaker that's interviewed, a, a Belgian filmmaker, I think, who was you know, apparently shooting all of the, the footage that they're now coming together of this Rolling Thunder review tour did not exist. Um, at one point, there's a, a former U.S. senator interviewed about it uh, that is literally a character from Robert Altman's film, Tanner 88. It's literally, <laughs> it's, and, and it's amazing, but mixed in with that is actual footage of, right. of, of Dylan and Joan Baez and, and, and all these people on tour in the 70s. And there's a Dylan interview now which involves some truth and some lies and it's complete alchemy but is scorsese, and it's amazing is scorsese tr- he's aware of the falsehoods right like he's mixing them in intentionally inside oh, yeah. the truth right see i did you ever i i don't i don't know if either of you have seen did you see stories we tell the the yeah. sarah Pauli movie like yeah. That to me is sort of also a distillation of everything we're talking about. This idea of what is truth, what is memory, you know, um, does it matter that something isn't true if if it's a memory that you believe in? Like, the, you know what I mean? Like, if if it helps your relationship to either with a person who's alive or a person who's dead. I mean, these are all just sort of, this is all kind of the stuff that kicks around in your head about like, you know, our existence, I guess, and, 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 you know, what is important to us and what isn't important to us. I I think that, you know, and, and again, this, this speaks perfectly to this film as well, which is playing with the ideas of, of, you know, history and what is real history and what, what actually happened. I mean, clearly millions and millions of Jews were killed and there are people that want to believe that that didn't happen or want to twist themselves into pretzels as to, you know, whatever. Um, you know, obviously I take umbrage and issue with those people, but if that helps them get out of bed in the morning and gives them some semblance of norm, of, of like guidance or, or whatever, I'm not necessarily sure that I, that I hate that notion. Right. Like, I mean, I think that, well, I just mean in the sense that like, what notion? I think huh? this idea <laughs> of, you better clarify that. Yeah. One. <laughs> I guess what I'm saying is I think that people believe what they're going to believe. And I don't, I don't think that people should believe in falsehoods. I don't think that people should believe in things that obviously didn't happen. But I also think that everyone has some compass inside them that gives them some sense of, of, of self. And I'm not, I'm not in any way, obviously denying or believing that a Holocaust denier should be allowed to deny the Holocaust. I mean, they're allowed to, I guess, freedom of speech and what have you, but like, I don't know. I just, I, well, I come back to this. Sorry. Go ahead. It's a different question. Like you're, you're, you're hitting on some really interesting things, you know? Okay. You, uh, you do get to a place where the word allowed is pretty loaded, right? Sure. So should a Holocaust denier be allowed to deny the Holocaust? 
Well, shit, I don't know the answer to that. Like, I don't yeah. think that's a very simple question. I think that, yeah. you know, I, I feel like I, I know a lot of people would say, yes, of course, they should be allowed. Uh, yeah. And then I think there are some people, um, and I don't really know where I fall in, who would say, of course, they should not be allowed. That's that's too dangerous of a of a, of a thought to be even yeah. in the public sphere. You're not allowed to believe that in Germany. I completely understand why that is. Or you're not allowed to publicly espouse that in Germany. I understand why that's the case. So... I, I, you know, to your, 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 you, how you kind of got, got into this, this muck, Phil, uh, <laughs> I mean, this, what, what was interesting in and of itself. Like, yeah. are, does society have the right to impose any kind of limits on free thought? free speech, free thought, like obviously there are limits on free speech that like everybody kind of agrees with, but are there any limits Not Twitter, on- apparently. <laughs> What's that? I, not Twitter, apparently. I mean, I, I just, we, we get into these weird, I mean, we had this with Trump, right? We had this where he's not only espousing misinformation, but that it's dangerous and that it will lead to, to violence, right? Like at some point, are we not supposed to have lines in the sand? I don't know the answer to this. I'm, I'm really just, you know, just talking. Well, it's, but. The difference between America and Canada is interesting. And it's very interesting that the Ernst Zundel trial that yeah. is in this film, Mr. Death, that was taking place in Toronto. That Do you remember that, Phil, when Vaguely. you were a kid? I do. That, yeah. I do. It, it, it happened a little bit, like when we, I think it was 88 or 89. So we were like very young. But then yeah. throughout the 90s, it kept kind of bubbling up uh-huh. um, in it. And it's kind of fascinating because... In Canada, the, and I think they even say in the movie, the, it's a very little used law because we basically have free speech here. But the, I guess what convicted Zundel is, is publishing a pamphlet that denies the Holocaust. The, you know, the steps that you take one after that is an incitement of violence against Jews because if the Holocaust didn't happen, then why did we say it happened? Because Jews made it up and then they're trying to, you know, control people or do whatever and that's bad. And so so whoever is the audience for a, for this pamphlet then needs to go out there and fight and stop Jews from doing this. And that can lead to violence. So that's, that's, um, that's, you know, what he, that's what, why, why Zundel went on trial and was, was found guilty despite Fred Lucher trying to help. I remember when that was happening too. One person that that I don't think in the trial, but but wrote about that situation and was saying that Zundel should be able to publish this stuff was actually Noam Chomsky, who right, is right, right. a figure on the left, a Jew, um, who you know is the, the complete opposite of a Nazi, and was saying that you know this pamphlet he's 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 written and publishing is completely wrong is totally abhorrent and is awful but i believe free speech is an absolute and so he should have the right to do it it's it's kind of like i have sympathy towards that but i also have sympathy like you know people shouldn't be hurt especially based on hate and bullshit i have uh my, my default position is that too my default position is protect free speech at all costs uh it should be the last thing that goes down um and phil we've talked about this a million times you know, like we, it comes up over and over again um, how how much I'm uncomfortable with the idea of censorship in any form. Um, yeah. 
it is something, it's not really existential. I'm going to be fine, but it's existential for our business. It's yes. existential yes. for what we do mm-hmm. to be able to be able to be able to feel like we can talk about whatever we want within the con the confines of our art without it being censored or, or taken down. Um, this isn't to say that I'm against quote unquote canceling people, which I think is also an expression of free speech. Um, Like, I think that's, that's an important distinction to make that, you know, if you're going to put things out into the public sphere, you could also be taken down by people within the public sphere. Question is now when you get the government issues that, um, and we're seeing it play out a little bit right now at this moment with Marjorie Taylor Greene, who has said some incredibly incendiary things like we should kill Nancy Pelosi um, within the last two years. And it would be gover- government at this point removing her based on things she has said in the past. Now, like, I see the slippery slope there. You know, I, I certainly see I certainly see the slippery slope where, you know, she said something horrible in the last two years. Could we get to the point where someone who said something horrible 20 years ago could be in trouble? Could you get to the point where someone like Robert Byrd, who is a reformed KKK um, member, wound up being a quite a liberal um, New Jersey Democratic senator, uh, wound, you know, would, would he be? Subject to that, are you allowed to change? Are you allowed? So, yeah. it's these are these are really kind of case by case things, um, and it, the whole thing makes me very uncomfortable. I just kind of want to scream, "Can't we just all be nice to each other and not Seriously? be dicks?" This I starts agree. at a young, this starts at a real young age. It, it, I mean, listen, this it goes without saying that this country is continues to evolve and is at a, is at a, a real crossroads that we're hopefully you know we'll find our way uh down the right path but uh freedom of speech is is unbelievably important and i'm and i'm certainly in no way suggesting that it should be uh that it should be censored or truncated but uh, it it just robert bird was from west virginia sorry okay um uh, very different than new jersey (laughs) well at the Um, time but yes but but I, i i you know i think that it all comes back to this film. It all comes back to this this idea of this man of science or claimed to be mm. a man of science, claimed it anyway. I, I'm not, you know, obviously suggesting that he was good at it or that he was particularly scientifically based. But um, this man who, you know, believed himself to be doing good, when it came to his executions and when it came to these things and, um, and when it came to, to, to going to Auschwitz and chiseling bits of the wall out and yeah. testing it for cyanide and then saying that the Holocaust could never happen. He thought he was doing good. I, I'd love to know what he thought um, they were doing with these rooms. Like, I, but, but that's but that's either here nor there. Uh, you know, it's, it's logic be damned with, well, with something like this, but you know, I want to throw something else out Please. there. Not I love this. I, I love a movie like this that, that kind of sets up so many interesting questions. Uh doesn't yeah. give you the answers, but part of art. So I would say that Fred Leicher, Leicher, Leicher was a <laughs> he was a man of science. I think that's a I think that's a fair thing to say. And I think it's also fair to say he was probably best in his field. Um I think what's really important is that there was nobody in his field. 
right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So he was the best of nobody. <laughs> he was the best of one guy. <laughs> when what's what uh Sam, what's the guy's name? The uh the Holocaust denier? Zundel? Zundel. Ernst Zundel. All right. So when Ernst Zundel and he's perfect name, by the way. I mean, just the Ernst, perfect when, name for when Holocaust Ernst Zundel, Yeah. When Ernst Zundel is uh is interviewed on camera, which is kind of an amazing thing. He says that, that Fred Leitcher is the only person in the world who, is, who, who has the skills to do this. That may have been kind of true. Now, I'm not saying, obviously, there are other people. Let me, let me, let me kind of amend that. There are other, obviously, people who are better, who, who have a better understanding of what would, what, what would be left behind when you have a cyanized filled, filled room, filled room. But there is one person who is probably the foremost expert in the world on sure. gas lethal injections, or at least that's a reasonable claim to make. The point I'm making is, and it's a, a long way of getting here. This is going to sound like I'm, I'm, I'm coming down one way, but I'm just throwing it out there. I'm, I am very anti-death uh, penalty. Um, I think it's revolting and abhorrent. It, the movie, in the movie, Fred Leitcher says something to the effect of there are a lot of people who won't work on these machines because they find it to be morally repugnant. My guess is that's a lot of the best people, if not most of the best people, right? There's, there might be like just, just, just how you're not going to find a lot of great scientists who are on the side of client, climate denialism. Uh, and that's why you have all these crappy papers from these idiots from universities you've never heard of, while everybody with any kind of expertise in this field is on the other side. However, execution is real in this country. It's an actual thing that actually happens. And it is incumbent upon us as a society to do it in the most humane way possible. Do you have to do, do the people who would have otherwise been the best at this have a moral obligation to make execution as humane as possible, or do they have a moral obligation to abstain from the process altogether? I would say abstain. I mean, you take that, take that energy, take that time, take whatever, and try and fight against capital punishment. I mean, you know, you, you are supporting the system by even if you're doing ways to, to make it more humane. The, the, and I feel like I'm playing devil's advocate because I wouldn't work on this. But it's that system that gets you to a place where the, the giants on the other side are the Fred Leichers. Just like the giants on the other side right now are Stephen Miller's and Seb Gorka's. And those are the people being taken seriously by the other side. Uh, now, I'm not saying that there's, that there's equivalency there. But, but when you have a side that's basically devoid of any rigorous intellectualism you wind up with these 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 true believing f- phonies and fraudsters and 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 monsters and i think that uh i think that that's that's dangerous in its own right well yeah that's that's totally true i i do i do want to clarify because i'm sure that like i mean we we had we had a lot of trouble finding a copy of this movie right now it's not particularly yeah. in print so you guys have both been referring to, to Lucher as a, a man of science. He is an uncredited electrical engineer that fell into also getting into lethal injection and, and gallows. 
he's he's an electrical engineer. That's all he is. That's not a scientist. That's not somebody that does lab testing. That's not whatever. He talks about how when he got into lethal injection machines and gas chambers, he just did a bunch of reading because his name as the as the expert on um, yeah, no. on electric chairs just got him other jobs. He he wasn't you know he wasn't trained in all this stuff at all. He's a self made man. I think I think it's fair to say he's about as ma- as much a man of science as Stephen Miller is a man of integrate of immigration. Um, <laughs> there, we, yeah. we, he ha- he has some he has some he has some guesses, um, <laughs> and, and a lot of lot of lot of gum and you know popsicle yeah. sticks there. So I point well taken, Simon. And and but I, I would I would double down a little bit by saying thank God he is so much sure. of a fraud an obvious fraud yeah. thank god he's so much of an obvious charlatan uh, even if he doesn't realize it because the scary thing to me is what happens when they get some good you know i would i would also love to know how this field and i'll put that in quotation marks because i'm not i'm not sure what the right you know way to describe it is has evolved since 99 I mean, I, 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 well, no I know. There are no more gallows, that, for instance. Well, there are no more gallows. There's no more electric chairs, correct? I, I mean, is that the way it works? As far as, yeah, okay. the way it works, it works as far as I understand is you can be killed by whatever, whatever methods are uh-huh. legal at the time of your sentencing or maybe of, of okay. your crime okay. being committed. Okay. So you'd have a situation where there probably weren't, gallows were probably not even allowed in 1999. But yes. people who did something in 1979 and said, right. I would prefer to be killed by you know, the gallows instead of uh, uh, lethal injection had the opportunity. I remember when we were younger, <laughs> wow. middle school, um, the last person who was legally killed by a firing squad, was, that happened. Um, because that person had committed the crime in the seventies or eighties or something along those lines. Uh, that being said, having seen the way these people die from these other methods, give me the firing squad. I was going to ask, we, we should all pick our own. How, how are we all going to be? <laughs> so I thought about I thought about it. I think, I think the firing squad is the move. Um, as, as it, if, it, it might be. The, the thing quickest. with the firing squad is what I'd want is to be riddled with bullets. Yeah. I'd want like, Slow motion people doves. shooting me at the same time sure, with, John, sure. with John Moo doves. What yeah. they do, or my understanding again, I feel like I know too much about this. But what they do is they they have like five guys shooting, four guys have blanks, and one guy has the real bullet, so they don't know who's actually shooting. Hmm. So, um, so yeah, you you get one between the eyes. <laughs> I mean, that's I I mean, ultimately, I would just come down on whatever is the quickest, ultimately, yeah. um, but. Do you want to rate this movie? It's hard to rate this movie, but let's wait. Let's, let me let's, say. Let me say how oh, I'm going to go. Oh, sorry, Simon. I thought you did. My apologies. <laughs> um, it, it's funny because my wife and I had this conversation as soon as the movie ended. <laughs> um, uh, I frankly, like you know, maybe it's a little too vintage or whatever, but I say, and it's for the quickness thing. Give me the guillotine. Guillotine. Oh, I like guillotine. It. Fast. Fast. Just done. That's yeah. that's actually a really good answer. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, I mean, it's give me the, give me the guillotine. <laughs> <laughs> the guillotine is the is the fastest. Um, Why did they stop using that? Too medieval. Too gross, gruesome, I guess. Yeah, probably. All right. There, I um, think there's a, there, there's probably a Christian thing about keeping the the body intact. 
Um, that's just a guess based on my understanding of Christianity. <laughs> so in 99, I saw this film. I liked this film. I probably would have given it an 85 back in, in 99. I think that I liked it. Again, like this is, I, I, I texted Kenny after he was done. I was like, did you like it? And he was like, I, I mean, as much as one can like him. Like this is a hard movie to sort of, to, you said to, you said that you said did you yeah. like it as much I mean as much as one could like it I yeah. said that's the right answer because that's <laughs> the right answer yeah um at, you know before this watching it yesterday as I said it was a harder experience so it was I I I can't say that I liked it more but I respected it more and I, I think I'm at like high 80s I'm probably at a 90 now something in that vicinity of a film that. Any film that can afford us, as Kenny said, the opportunity to be able to talk about these things that lays out complex, interesting uh, notions with a character that is fascinating in his own way is a good movie. It's a great movie, right? Like that, that that's all we should strive for when it comes to, to, to cinema, as far as I'm concerned, as long as it makes you think a little bit and it gives you opportunities to be able to talk with, uh, you know, friends about things. Great. So I'm probably at a 90. Where do you think you lie, Kenny? You know, it's funny. I, uh, I forgot that I had rated this in the moment um, <laughs> because sometimes I do. And sometimes I don't, I rated right. it a 78. I, I okay. don't exactly know why I went that low because I'm going to go higher right now. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I thought I thought that was a good grade, but it feels a lot better than that to me after yeah. this conversation. Yeah. I, I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna go all the way up to a ninety. I, I I think it's really a a tremendous tremendous film. So resonant. So so important. Um, there 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 are things we didn't even really discuss about um, the way a character is built throughout the piece. Um, I think there is a really interesting kind of cinematic turn with this character. Oh, yeah. Um, and I think... I, I hope that I'm not undercutting my point. I think that this is a very responsible film. Again, you don't have to be responsible necessarily, but bonus points if you are. And I think it's a really responsible way of telling this story. And uh, I would never have any hesitancy about showing this to anybody, um, which could be a, which, which could be a, a pitfall with a film about this particular subject. So I'm going to give it a 90. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, 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 I want to agree and I want to piggyback on it just for a second and just to say about how, you know, how the film is structured, how the film is, is, how he delineates this man to us in that first half an hour is just so vitally important. You know, he seems quirky. He seems like a guy that you're kind of, it's so important that he not just gets his hooks in you, but that he feels like a human being who has, um, you know, who's, who has the best of intentions under the circumstances. Um, and then to cut sort of to pull the rug out from underneath you and do this deep dive you know, into this, like a lesser filmmaker, I think would have kept him quirky longer and wouldn't have gone as deep into the Holocaust denial component of it. Um, And I think that it's a testament to Errol Morris as a filmmaker that he, that, that the percentages are the way that they are. Um, Or they might've done it the other, the other way around. It might've been, it might've been mostly just about the, the, the Lucha report and the Zindel case. And then a little with, with, you know, Mm -hmm. A little bit of background, but yeah, it's 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 amazing how yeah. how that happened. I would, 
I think I, I didn't think about this beforehand. I would probably say I'm going to give it a 95. I'm rating it very highly. I mean, I think it's an amazing piece of art. I think it's an amazing piece of filmmaking. I think that it just makes you think and think and think and ask all kinds of questions. And that's about the best thing that a movie and especially a documentary can do. It's funny, at the time I saw it would have in 99, it would have been on my top 10 list for sure. Now, I mean, Morse's style, and it wasn't just this film, but it's like this film, Fast, Cheap, and Out of Control, and The Thin Blue Line. His style was so revolutionary then and has been so influential now that in a way this movie loses a bit of something because you see this style everywhere. Whereas in 1999, this was, you know, the second or third movie to ever actually have a style like this. So I remember seeing it then and just being completely blown away because, I mean, even, you know, the way that the Robert Richardson shot, you know, Mm -hmm. character, stylized character pieces were. Now you see things like that. Maybe not as good, but now you see things like that. You did not see things like that then. And it just kind of blows me away. So, do I dock it points in 2021 because sure. now it is now it doesn't look so unique or do I continue giving it those points because it was so things up in yeah. a way for, give for it everything. The, so, give it the points. Give it the yeah, points. So I'm going to give it the points. <laughs> I thought you I'm going to give it a 95. I'll, 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 I'll settle with that. There was one quote that I read that um, I thought was pretty interesting. Um, somebody was likening or, or just you know bring up the comparison because of the subject matter between this movie and schindler's list and errol morris made a good a good an interesting point about it which was you know schindler's list one of the things that's about is about how any man can be a hero mm-hmm. and this movie is about how any man can think he's a hero yeah i thought that yeah. that was a pretty Excellent no, I think of, I think that Fred absolutely thinks himself to be a hero. I mean, he I think he I mean even at the end he feels like, you know, his as unjust he feels he is being treated unjustly. Um which makes him I mean that much more of a fascinating fool, but he, I believe he <laughs> yeah. is alive. Is that correct? I don't know. <laughs> Maybe. Um, I was thinking of googling him, but I didn't. He is alive. He is still okay. alive. So I, uh, I, you know, I wonder what's going on now in his life. Um, <laughs> yeah. It doesn't yeah. seem like there's much on on Wikipedia about anything in the you know pretty much since 1990. But yeah, he's alive and, and living somewhere. That's that's kind of interesting wow. in its own right. That's crazy, especially considering the coffee and cigarettes. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. All that being said, Simon, thank you for being on. Yes, thank you. Um, it was fun. It was great to have you on for this. It was so great to have you back to talk about um, a great movie that I'm that I'm thrilled we got to cover again. We hope that you'll come back. We hope that you'll come back for and maybe come on our Patreon as well for an '89 movie or something like that. We'd love to. We'd love to have you back. So thank you so, hey, so anytime. much. You know I love you, Phil and Kenny. I'm very <laughs> fond of you. Oh, I appreciate that. I'm fond of you as well. <laughs> well, uh, to our listeners, please rate, review, subscribe. Thank you to Ernie and Will for producing this episode. Thank you to Jan for our key art and our theme music. Thank you to Sullivan for doing our social media. Um, thank you for listening. And please check out our Patreon pa- uh, podcast, I guess, 1989, uh, where we are covering the films of 1989. Thank you so much.
Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.